You are listening to Sermon Audio from Day 3 Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com. Good morning. We're kind of in the middle of an Easter series that we've called Before and After. The before part follows Jesus to the cross. The uh, after part, which will start next Sunday, uh, gets on the other side of the cross, the resurrection, and also looks at how the reality of the crucifixion and the resurrection impacted His disciples, and us asking ourselves this question, just maybe our lives ought to be impacted in similar ways as their lives uh, were impacted. So that's where the before and after part comes from. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. And the reason I want to take a moment and point that out, it is a great time for you to invite people to come to church. Christmas and Easter are times that you can get unchurched people a lot of times to come and kind of check it out and see what's going on. So I want to encourage you to do that. If you will bring people with you, and if some of you can bring people with you and come at 8.30, it'll kind of help out this service on Easter Sunday to give us a little bit more room in that service. So please, please pray about that and invite someone to come next week as we uh, uh, look at our Resurrection Sunday, our Easter Sunday uh, next week. In this series thus far, we have looked at Jesus riding a donkey into Jerusalem. That might sound like it's strange when you consider He's God in the flesh, your Creator, and He rides a donkey into Jerusalem. On top of it, people are there crying out, Hosanna, which means save now. Uh, they weren't looking for spiritual salvation at that point. They were looking at Him as a political leader coming in and saying, chase off the Roman Empire. So He comes into the city. Some of the same ones that are yelling out, Hosanna, blessed is the one that comes in the name of the Lord, will be in just a few days yelling out, crucify Him. Uh, and we'll even see that take place in our text today. Uh, so we also looked at the reason why Jesus came. We looked at the ride. We looked at why Jesus came. We were back in John 12 at the time. We're going to John 19 today. But uh, Jesus came primarily for this reason. We looked at other reasons also. But primarily, Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins so that through faith in Him, we can have everlasting life. Last week, we looked at this, the rejection. The same one that rides in to Jerusalem on the donkey to the shouts of the crowd saying, Hosanna, now they reject him. The nation of Israel rejects him as being their Messiah. And that's how we wind up at the cross today, which, by the way, people still reject Jesus today, sadly enough. Today we're looking at the redemption. I'm going to run a side message before I read these verses. And I just thought this week maybe I needed to do that. Because in the last series we did on relationships, husband and wife stuff, and things like that. And, uh, you know, in that it kind of lends itself to some comical situations because most of us dudes are kind of stupid a lot of times. So uh, a lot of things you can kind of poke fun at. And, you know, you may be coming to this series and thinking, well, where did all the funny stuff go? Well, here's where it went. There's not any funny stuff. When it comes to Jesus going to the cross and dying for our sins. Really serious stuff. And today as we read these verses, Jesus arrives at His destination that had been foretold, His destination that He had, the most important event that takes place in the history of the world is when Jesus goes to the cross and sheds His blood for the sins of mankind. That's what we're looking at, the redemption. Look at these verses. When Pilate heard this, by the way, Pilate was uh, like a lot of politicians. He was trying to uh, set Jesus free, but he's under a lot of pressure, so he goes with the flow because he's under a lot of pressure. He heard this, and he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in the Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation for the Passover week. About the sixth hour was the time frame. He says this to the crowd. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. And then he asked them this question. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. And then look at the statement that, by the way, will you notice who it's made by? I underlined it intentionally for you. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest. 
answer. Now here's a little free side rabbit just for a moment. The chief priest ought to be about pointing people to God. The chief priest ought to be about leading people in worship. And maybe some of the most tragic words you could ever find is these people who are supposed to be doing that yell out and they say, we don't have any king but Caesar, which is the equivalent of saying we don't have any king but government. So here's a little free side message. We need to be careful in our churches today and pastors in churches today that we focus on Jesus and not politics. Because Jesus is our king and not government. It's about God and worshiping Him. It is not about government. I'm afraid sometimes if we're not careful, we get so politically active and involved, we forget what the main thing is. The main thing is the main thing, which is Jesus. What we're talking about today, Him crucified on the cross. Story goes on. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, or at least they thought they did. They were just participating in a little passion play that God had arranged. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him with two others. And of course we know from reading other accounts, two thieves are there, one on either side. One on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read this, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign because the place where he was being crucified was close to the city, and the sign was written in three languages, in Aramaic, which predominantly the Jews were using a lot in that day and time to communicate Latin and Greek. The chief priest of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. And here's what Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. What I want us to do today is visit this crucifixion scene of Jesus, visit the cross of Jesus, and make some very important observations while we are there. Observation number one is this. The sign nailed to the cross there is a sign that we just read about that's nailed to the cross Pilate had it written out and he had it nailed to the cross saying the king of the Jews they didn't like it maybe Pilate was trying to front down the Jews a little bit uh, you remember the Jews themselves had said this they had said can anything good come out of Nazareth and then Pilate has put on this sign, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. So maybe Pilate's making a little statement. This is what your king is like. You don't like it because you've already put him down. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Maybe he was making a little statement to the Jews because of that. Maybe Pilate was making another type of statement, maybe a political type statement. Maybe he was trying to say, this is your king, but look what we as a Roman government can do to him. Maybe he was trying to front them down like that to a certain degree. And just maybe, Pilate was reading between the lines a little bit, and he knew what their motives were, and that they hated Jesus, and they were jealous over Jesus, and he's kind of flying this in their face a little bit as he puts on the sign, King of the Jews. By Roman tradition, they would do this. When someone was being executed, they would hang a placard around the neck of the accused. And on that placard would be the accusation, what he's being executed for, what his charges were. We're not told in the Bible Jesus actually wore one around his neck. We are told, though, that one is nailed to the cross. One is nailed to the cross stating that he was the king of the Jews. And the Jewish leaders hated that that was there. Ever since that time, there have been Paintings upon paintings, artwork and sculptors and all kinds of things like that that have taken place depicting the crucifixion of Jesus. And in most all of them, what do you always see above his head? A sign. And a lot of times we might just think, yeah, that's that sign, here's what it says, and we just go on by it and not even stop to think, just maybe there's some significance in this sign. So before we move on, I want us to slow down for a minute and I want us to take some time and look in detail at this sign. Because there are three languages there, all saying Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. And each one of these languages more or less give us a picture or represent areas, big areas of human life. 
You've got a picture of religion because of the Hebrew or the Aramaic that is written there. The Jews, of course, were God's people. He had brought them out of bondage. He had inspired them to write most of the Bible and everything. So it's like religion is really attached over here to the Jews. And then you have also the Greek language, which represent philosophy and culture. And of course, you know, Greece was all about that, having their philosophers and, you know, higher methods of thinking and, and all their culture and everything. And then the Latin would represent law, not God's law, but civic law. Because the Roman Empire was so well known for trying to, you know, get their civilization and, and have all these laws and everything that would manage their culture, citizenship, and all that was stressed so strongly through the Roman Empire. So these three languages represent three big areas of human life. The problem there is this. None of these three areas of human life will save a lost sinner. None of them will. Not religion. And by the way, if, if, if you're tied up in religion, you don't understand the difference between religion and Christianity. I'll tell you in just a moment. But right now you might be thinking, religion? You mean religion can't save a lost sinner? That's exactly right. Religion can save no one. Religion cannot save anyone. Philosophy can't save anyone. The law, just having you know, all these laws on the books and everything else, will not save lost sinners. And here's why. Religion is this. Religion is a lot of people doing good things that they think will get them in good standing with God, and God will have to let them into heaven. Religion gives us the idea of man trying to work his way to heaven, trying to build a stairway to heaven, so to speak. No, I didn't listen to the song on the way to church, okay? Just illustration. But you see, if we're not careful, guys, people get tied up in religion. Not just in the religion of Judaism, but people get tied up in being religious in churches today. And it's like, you know, if we're good enough, if we just act enough, if we serve enough, if we come to church enough, if we go through a bunch of religious practices, then somehow God will have to let us into heaven. And if we're not careful with that mentality, what we're doing is this. We are developing a lot of little Tower of Babel enterprises to whereby we think our churches can generate things to where we work our way to heaven, where we build a tower and God will have to receive us. See, religion saves no one. Religion is based on man trying to do something. Religion is man trying to reach up to God. And that's greatly different than Christianity. You may never have heard this before unless you know, you've been around someone that says things like I do, I guess. But Christianity is not a religion. Did you know that? Religion is people trying to work their way to heaven. Christianity is a relationship with God that comes about because God initiated the contact. It's not man trying to lift himself up to God. God reached down to where we were as lost sinners, and here's how God reached. God sent His Son into this world to die on a cross, to shed His blood, that through Him we can have everlasting life. That's how God reached down to us. That's what real Christianity is. Religion, trying to do good and be good and everything that goes with it, will not save anyone. But what religion cannot do, Jesus does. Second thing we have is philosophy and culture. You see, that wasn't just huge in that day in the culture of the, of the Greeks. It's still huge in our day. Because there are people who think, if I can just think high enough thoughts, if I can just have all these human philosophies that will transform me and change me, then I can evolve into the state that God has to receive me. The problem with that is people are taking wisdom and turning wisdom into being their God. Seeking knowledge and philosophy and raising that into the realm of thinking we can generate it in ourselves, have enough high thoughts, develop enough culture in our lives to where God will have to receive us. See, that line of thinking is really flawed, and here's why. Look what the Bible says. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? If I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct, 
according to what his deeds, stop there for a minute, deserve. God is not going to judge us based upon our philosophies or based upon our good intent or based upon a higher level of thinking that we might think we can evolve into. God looks at our actions. God looks at our deeds. There's no way that we as unregenerate human beings can just sit back and think, I can, I can change myself. We can have all this higher level of thinking, all these philosophies, and we'll come up with that. And somehow, that'll transform us to where God will have to accept us. See, here's also why it's flawed. Look what it says in Romans. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Notice this. The mind of sinful man is death. If the mind of an unregenerated man, the mind of a lost man, is death, how in the world are you going to think thoughts that bring about life from a dead mind? How are you going to have philosophy to change the world and philosophy to change your life and change my life if we just have all these higher thoughts? We sit around and dream all these lofty things and, and think how that can change our society and change our world. You see, the problem is we're thinking all those things out of a mind that is flawed because of sin. Philosophy and culture will not save anyone. Now, if you're someone that's really cultured, you might not like that. You might be thinking, you just don't know how sophisticated I am. You don't have many degrees I have after my name, how much wisdom I have. You don't understand how much culture I have. I get all these events that are put on in our society, high society, and I'm just a very cultured person, and surely I'm so cultured God is going to have to receive me. Well, the truth of that is this. Cultured people without Jesus die and go to hell. I've, got, I've studied a lot. I've got all these philosophies, all these ideas in my head. The trouble is this. Smart people without Jesus die and go to hell. culture will save no one philosophy will save no one and what philosophy and culture cannot do jesus does what about the law go back to the law just for a moment the law as i said earlier is not god's law but it's the idea of Roman law. It's written in the Latin, and that's what it represents, I think, by being on the cross. These three big areas of human life. You see, we almost delude ourselves into believing if we can just legislate enough laws, if we can have enough rules on the book, then somehow we can change our culture, and everything will be great, and everyone will get along, and everything will be perfect. You know the problem with that is this. Watch the evening news. Read your newspaper. And recognize this, America probably has more laws on the books than any nation in this world. And if laws and having civilization and citizenship would change our society and evolve us into something that God would accept, America ought to be the most perfect place on the planet. But it's not because you realize it's not. You screw up, I screw up, other people screw up. Read the newspaper, watch the TV. Law will not change lives see God does, God's not interested in changing our lives from the outside by laws and legislation God wants to get in our heart and renovate our lives from the inside out and neither the laws of Rome or the laws of America or any other nationality any other society any other culture can do that God changes lives from the inside out now, what all these areas fail in doing, Jesus and His cross succeeded in a great way. Look at these verses, because Paul writes these verses, and it almost kind of really flies in the face of everything that we just talked about, about, you know, religion or philosophy. Uh, look what he's writing here. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Let me stop for a moment. What he's meaning is this. The fact of someone going to the cross and dying on the cross, how in the world does that change anything? I mean, Jesus going to the cross from a worldly standpoint is like that dude got himself killed. You know, how does that change anything? He's the one we're supposed to follow. He got himself killed. That's the way the world would look at it and think about it. It's foolishness to them. Let me try and illustrate 
uh, that for a moment. I went uh, Friday night. There's a new uh, coffee shop I'm advertising for them today uh, up here in, uh, in, in Granite Falls. And uh, one of our uh, youth, Jill, was going to be up there singing, and I found out about it, so I wanted to go up there for the open mic and kind of listen to her sing. So Becky and myself, that was kind of going to be our, our Friday night out. And we got there, and we saw that she wasn't singing just yet. She had already done a set, do a set later. So we thought we'd go get something to eat because we hadn't had supper yet. Well, I also knew there's a restaurant that's opened up right beside the coffee shop here in Granite Falls. Problem is, I wasn't too sure about it because... I had been by a few months ago, and there was a sign, you know, put up in the window real big, best hamburgers in town. It was kind of handwritten out, kind of cheesy, you know, and everything. So I'm thinking, I'm not sure about that place. You know, not just because of his sign, but I, but I think Al's already has the best hamburgers in town. So, you know, I, I don't know how he's going to top that uh, on it. So anyway, uh, we decided to go over there. Well, when we get over there, I find out that guy never even opened the restaurant, and there's someone else that's opened the restaurant. To be honest with you, that didn't really make me feel good either. Because I think, all right, why did not the other guy launch, and now this guy has launched a restaurant? And we're kind of going a little bit skeptical. Now, honest guys, I love the area we live in, but think about it. It's a restaurant in an old, dilapidated building on downtown Granite Falls. Okay? Does that give you a lot of confidence? Hey, I bet that's great food. <laughs> so anyway, we go in, and after I get in the door and walk back, you know, toward, and, and by the way, too, they were, it was closing time. They'd already put their clothes on up, but they invited us in to eat anyway. When does restaurant people do that? They want to kick your butt out, you know, while you're there if it's closing time. So anyway, they, they tell us to go on in, and we're walking back through there, and I see Alan Huffman, who comes to the church back there. So Alan turns around and sees me, and he starts telling me all kinds of stuff. He said, man, they, you know, they've got you know, great chicken tenders over here, and, and the vegetables and everything's really good. They had a bar set up, and he said they, you know, they make their own uh, salad dressing. has got a great salad bar, and, you know, and they do all this own stuff themselves and, and everything. So I start feeling pretty good about it. Because, you know, Alan can he probably eat where he wanted to eat at, and he's there eating at that place, and he's telling me it's a good place. And, you know, Margo was there too, and everything. So I start feeling a little bit better. So we go ahead and sit down and eat. The guy comes out to meet me, pray that he comes to church. They're looking for a church, and everything. Talk to him about that. But, guys, listen, honestly, I, I'm not telling you this because they paid me money to give you an advertisement. The name of the place is, is Mama Kay's, and, and it's some of the best food I have had anywhere it was great food tremendous flavors developed all of his own dry rubs and stuff like that it was wonderful now you wonder why am i ranting about a restaurant here's why to start with the restaurant because of where it was located and everything else seemed a little bit like foolishness to me but as i walk through the door and i see someone that i know that helps me a little bit and then that guy starts telling me how great it is. That helps me a whole lot. Because someone I had confidence in has eaten in there several times, and he loved his experience. So that makes me think, hey, this must be pretty decent. See, here's the deal with this. The world looks at Jesus being crucified as foolishness. And if you're here and you've never received Christ, you may be thinking today, it's kindly foolish. But if you'll listen to someone that has experienced Jesus, if you'll listen to someone that's pulled up at his dining table and they've experienced Jesus, and, and you see the good experience they've had and what he's done in their lives, that ought to give you all the confidence in the world to think, I need the same Jesus. I can eat here. I like this place. I believe it'll be something that can change my life. Let's read on. Foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, and some people get you know, tripped up with that, we have been saved from the penalty of our sin. We are being saved from the power and rule of sin over us. Thank God one day we'll be saved in the very presence of sin. But anyway, he says those who are being saved, it's the power of God. This thing that looks foolish to the world, we understand as Christians, man, that's what we need is God's power. Jesus going to the cross. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher 
of this age. That's the kind of stuff we were just talking about. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through His wisdom did not know Him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached, which is Jesus crucified, to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. They did. I mean, their concept of the Messiah is this. Show us big stuff, come in and chase the Romans off. They're demanding big signs. He gave them big signs again and again and again and again. They still didn't believe. Greeks look for wisdom. Hey, wisdom is their God. There are people still like that in our world today. Philosophy and wisdom and higher learning, that's their God. I will be honest with you guys, I have met people with third degrees behind their name. You wonder what that is. That's a theological doctor degree. With thuds behind their name, who are thuds? They think they're smarter than God. People cause that to be their God. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. Why is he a stumbling block? Because the Jews minimized him. Oh, surely that's not what we need. And they're looking around for something else, and they're tripping over Jesus. And foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. This ought to bless you if you'll apply it to your life in this way. Think about what you were like when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble of birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Now here's how that ought to bless you. I don't know of anyone that has royal blood in their veins unless you have it by virtue of trusting Christ as your Savior. You're not noble. You might not be the smartest person in the world. You might not think you're the sharpest you know, cookie or whatever on the block. But you ought to be blessed by what I just read because what I just read says this. God loves taking that kind of person and using them. God loves to reach down to the broken and put them together and glorify Himself through their lives. God loves to take the unlearned. They put down the disciples and say, these are unlearned men. Where do they learn to speak like this? They've been with Jesus. It ought to bless you that the Bible says that. And then it says, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before Him. We don't have anything to brag about except Jesus. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness. We're made right through Jesus. Holiness. We're made holy through Him. Redemption. We have been bought for, paid for. Our sins have been taken care of by the the shed blood of Jesus. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're making observations at the cross. We're look, we have looked so far at the sign. There's a sign on the cross in three languages, represents three big areas of human life. None of them will save you. Let's make a second observation. Observation number two is the person nailed on the cross is the person nailed on the cross. And the reason I say the person nailed on the cross is because what we are about to do is give you some additional evidence that Jesus is who He claimed to be. See, when I say the person named on the cross, most of you, because of your you know, church culture, because of your re religiousity, a lot of you just said this. Yeah, the person on the cross is Jesus. Jesus Christ. Do you realize Christ is not His last name, that Christ was His title? The word Christ means the Christos, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the One that was sent from God. That's what it means. So this Jesus that's on the cross, there are several things that happen while He is on the cross that gives us evidence to believe He, in fact, is the Christos. He, in fact, is the Messiah. He, in fact, is the Christ. He had already performed miracle after miracle. He had been doing miracles all through his earthly ministry, proving that he was who he claimed to be. And now, even as he's nailed on the cross, there are going to be some significant signs that will take place that can help you understand you can't trust in Jesus, you can't believe in Jesus. Jesus did all that needs to be done for you to...
trust in Him. He is who He claims to be. All I'm going to do is look at some verses in the Bible, and uh, I want you to see what's said here in John, and I want you to realize what is said here in John fulfills scriptures that happened hundreds of years before Jesus was crucified. Now, that being true, that ought to give us faith to believe Jesus is who He claimed to be. Remember, He's nailed to a cross. He's not down there going through the crowd and saying, you do this, and you do that, and you say this, and you say that, and it'll all fit together and fulfill Scripture. Jesus is nailed to the cross. And yet things happen while He's nailed there that prove that He's who He said He was. Look at this passage of Scripture in John. When the soldiers crucified him, they took his clothes. They divided him up and, and everything, and then they came down to this uh, undergarment, and they said, well, it's, you know, it's really nice, it's seamless, it's woven in one piece from the top to the bottom. And they said, let's don't tear it apart, and you know, each one of us take a little bit of it. They said, and still, let's gamble for it. You know, let's throw some lots. We'll gamble for it and see who gets it. The Bible says this happened, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. That passage of Scripture fulfills this passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. Because when you go to Psalm 22, the Bible says, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Hundreds of years before it happened. Hundreds of years before it took place, God said it would happen. Now it happens while Jesus is nailed to the cross. Evidence that He's who He claimed to be. Look at the next passage. Later knowing that all was now completed... And so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. That fulfills this passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. They put gall in my food, and they gave me vinegar for my thirst. Next passage of Scripture, back in John again. Now was the day for the preparation. They're getting ready for the Passover. The next day was to be a special Sabbath because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath day. Hey, they didn't mind killing somebody, but they didn't want the bodies stinking up their place on their worship day. Like a lot of churches today sometimes. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath. They asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So here's what happened. The soldiers go and they look at the two thieves that are there. They come to one and they break his legs. They go to this other one they break his legs. They come to Jesus and Jesus is already dead so they don't break his legs. Instead, they put a spear in and out comes blood and water, which by the way gives evidence that his heart exploded inside of him because of all the burden of sin that he was carrying as he was there on the cross. And then John, as he writes this, said the man who saw it is given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may believe. See, all these signs happen so that you may believe. He's who he claimed to be. These things happen so the Scripture will be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. That passage of Scripture fulfills this passage of Scripture. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. And it also fulfills this passage of Scripture. Because in Exodus, as they were getting ready for the original Passover meal, they were told this, It must be eaten, the Passover lamb. It must be eaten inside one house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. That first Passover lamb was a type of the real Passover lamb, which is Jesus Christ Himself. None of His legs are broken. All of these things are signs to let us know Jesus is who He claims to be, so we ought to believe in Him and have faith in Him. John nineteen thirty seven tells us this. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. That fulfills this passage of Scripture, partially, not completely, because there's still coming a day they're going to be confronted with Jesus and look upon the one they pierced. But it says this in Zechariah, They will look on me, the one they have pierced. All of these, many of them by different authors, some were in the Psalms, but many by different authors that God inspired to write this down, hundreds of years before it ever took place, wrote this down, and now it happens while Jesus is nailed to the cross to let us know, here's a sign, He's who He claimed to be, you need to trust in Him. Now, a lot of times we want scientific evidence. 
There's a guy by the name of Phil Stoner that wrote a book, Science Speaks, several years ago. And he started looking at all the Messianic prophecies and figuring up what the odds would be. And this is what he came up with. He was a mathematician by trade, a scientist. And he said the odds that any one person fulfilled just eight of the prophecies, just eight of the Messianic prophecies, was one in ten to the 17th power, which, by the way, as you can see, is a huge number. It's one with 17 zeros following it. Now, that's just one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Messianic prophecies in the Bible. I wonder what those odds look like. So, Pastor, what are you trying to say? I'm trying to tell you this. Jesus is exactly who He claimed to be. And the person that is nailed on the cross is God in the flesh, shedding His blood, that through Him you might have everlasting life. The person on the cross was not just some condemned criminal. It was not just some good teacher. It was not just a human being that died there. The person on that cross is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, shedding God's blood to pay for our sins. Signs of why that's true. There are also some sayings that are pretty significant that took place while Jesus was on the cross. Matter of fact, you've probably heard sermons before people talk about the seven sayings of Christ on the cross. Uh, I'm not going to talk about all of them. They're all significant. They're all good. I mean, he said things like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Man, I love comments like that. But I want to go to the one I think is the biggie. I mean, a very, very huge statement that Jesus made on the cross. Here it is. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is almost taken care of. I almost did everything that needs to be done for you to go to heaven. Jesus, in a loud voice, some of the other gospels tell us, in a loud voice shouted out, It is finished and then with that he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit they didn't kill him he let himself die after he shouted it is finished I can still remember when I was in Bible college not long after being called in the ministry and having a professor do a word study on this phrase it is finished and it rocked my world and I have never got over it Matter of fact, I, I, I don't know. You might as well get prepared for it because I think God's probably told me to do this. I'm still checking it out to be sure, but I'm probably going to show up in a couple of weeks or so, and I'm probably going to have a tattoo about right here of a cross with a banner across it that says tetelestai, which is the Greek word for it is finished. And if, I mean, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. I'm just telling you what I think God's telling me to do. Because I think a lot of people look at that and they say, what does that word mean? I say, man, I'd love to tell you what this word means. Here's what it means. Like I said, the Greek word is tetelestai. It is translated here, it is finished. But here's how it was used in Jesus' day. A merchant, when you're buying something from a merchant down at the marketplace and you had paid him enough money, he would use the word tetelestai, which means paid in full. You paid everything you need to pay. In Jesus' day, shepherds and priests, as they would go out and look for the perfect sheep, ready for sacrifice, one that was without spot and without blemish, when they found it, they would use that word, tetelestai, perfect lamb for sacrifice. Servants in that day and time would run to their masters when they had completed their task, and they would run to the master and say that word, tetelestai, which means this, my work is complete. Now, will you please apply that to Jesus just for a moment? Because when Jesus said, from the cross, it is finished, He was saying, it is paid in full. Everything that ever would possibly need to be paid for your sins, I have paid it on the cross. I have shed my blood, and I have paid for you in full full not partial payment complete payment done finished once and forever it's paid in full the high priests that were there so wanting to see jesus crucified i think it rocked their world when jesus yelled out it is finished because they understood that language they'd used it plenty of times 
we found a lamb that's worthy for us to use for the sacrificial system. It's perfect. It's without spot. It's without blemish. Tetelestai. And they had said that word many times. Now they hear the Lamb of God from the cross say, It is finished. Jesus, as the obedient servant of God the Father, did everything that God the Father sent Him to do. And now the obedient Son can return to God the Father and say, My work is is complete. I have done everything that you call me to do. And you need to understand this is huge when it comes to your relationship with God through Christ. It's not like it is almost taken care of. It is not that Jesus almost did everything that needs to be done. Jesus absolutely, totally, completely, 1,000%, 1,000,000% did everything that needs to ever be done for you to have eternal life. If you'll believe in Him. That's what this person on the cross did for us. Once and for all, God's plan of salvation is completely finished. The ultimate Lamb of God shed His blood and said, It is paid in full. We're making observations at the cross. There's a sign that was nailed to the cross. There's a person that was nailed on the cross. Jesus Christ. But as we get ready to close, I want you to think about the men that came to the cross. The men that come to the cross. One is implied in our passage of Scripture, and one is really detailed out. There's one man that comes toward the cross in faith, and he was nailed to another cross. He was one of the thieves. You've heard the story before, probably. If not, just let me tell it to you. There were two thieves that were being crucified along with Jesus. One made fun of Jesus, like the rest of the crowd. They was poking fun of Jesus, saying, well, if, you know, if you're the Son of God, save yourself and save us. Man, look, look how cold and callous that is. You're dying, and you're the last act that you do in your life is going to be to make fun of somebody else. But the other thief had been checking things out. He had been hearing some things said like, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. He had maybe been reading the sign up there and thinking, you know what, based upon what I'm hearing and what that says and the way he's acting, I think that sign's probably true. After all, I mean, be honest. You know, lay, lay down your little religious hair for a minute. If you're the one nailed to the cross, would you be up there saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing? Our first reaction would be this. God sent the angels of heaven, sent an atomic bomb down out of heaven, blow them up, get rid of them, take them out, look how they're treating me. I don't deserve this. God, do something about it. That's the way we'd be. But Jesus knows He's doing exactly what He's supposed to be doing. And He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this thief over there has been checking things out. And he looks to Jesus in faith, and he says, Remember me when you come into my kingdom. That's all he said. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and made him a promise. And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I'm telling you the truth. Here's the truth. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. Now, let me give you a little something to chew on before I go any further than that. The man was nailed to a cross. He wasn't baptized. He didn't join a church. I'm not saying those things are wrong. Jesus tells us to be baptized. But I'm telling you, baptism doesn't save you. And joining a church doesn't save you. He was never ordained a deacon. He never served anybody in Jesus' name. Didn't ever go to Sunday school. Didn't ever have a quiet time in this world. The only thing that he could do was believe in Jesus. And Jesus said, I promise you, because you believed in me, you're going to be with me in paradise. 
See, that's a huge lesson for some of you maybe to possibly learn. You will not work your way to heaven by coming to this church or any church. You will not work your way to heaven no matter how much you read, pray, or anything else. The only way you get to heaven is by trusting in Jesus. We do all the other stuff because we've trusted in Jesus. But there's some other men that come to the cross. And they're detailed out in our scriptures today. Two other men, by faith, walked toward the cross, brought open daylight after Jesus dies. Later it said, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but catch this, secretly, because he is afraid of the Jews. If you were here last week, we looked at a passage like that. It said that some of the leaders believed in Him, they had faith in Jesus, but they wouldn't make it public because they were scared of the Pharisees. So here, this Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple of Jesus, now seems to get it right because he's not secret anymore. He walks out boldly, publicly, and he asks for the body of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea would have been someone that was wealthy. He had his own tomb. The Bible says he'll be buried with the rich. He was for a short period of time. He comes out publicly to ask for the body of Jesus so it can be taken and it can be laid in a tomb. You know what would have happened minus that taking place? And God was in control of all this, guys. I'm just telling you, God controlled every aspect of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. God the Father. You know what they normally did with people they crucified? Criminals that were executed? They took them out and threw them on the garbage dump of the city and let their bodies rot and the dogs eat their flesh. But our Savior, because this secret disciple decides it's time to go public, he comes out and he gets him boldly, publicly, and he takes him and he puts him in his very own tomb. Like I said, he just needed it a little while. It's Friday right now, but Sunday's on the way. We'll talk about Sunday next week. There's also another man. His name was Nicodemus. You've probably heard of him before. Nicodemus was the one that came to Jesus by night. And Jesus told him, in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. Nicodemus, it's not about you being religious. It's not because you're a Pharisee. It's not because you're part of the Sanhedrin. You need to be born again. And it appears that he had been a secret disciple of Jesus also. Why? He's probably part of the crowd we read about last week. He was afraid of the Pharisees, the rest of the Pharisees. He was afraid of what they might do to him. He bowed down and cowed down to peer pressure. See, a Pharisee is someone that's a separatist. You remember the word study last week? A separatist, someone that thinks they're better than you, somebody that looks down on other people, somebody that thinks they are exclusively religious. There's a good picture of it in the Bible. There's this little guy over here by the name of a publican, the Bible says, and he's over here, not a Republican, a publican, and he's over here kneeling and he's praying and he's just glad that he could pray out to God. And this Pharisee walks in and beats his chest and he points over here and says, God, I thank you, I'm not like him. That's a Pharisee. So Nicodemus had been afraid to come public. He started that direction a little bit because in John chapter 7 you find this. This is Nicodemus making this statement. Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? See, they're already gossiping and talking about Jesus behind the scenes. Man, he's doing this. He's doing that. We don't like him. He's getting all the limelight and everything. So all the religious leaders and the high priests and everything, they're behind the scenes gossiping and putting Jesus down, talking about him. And Nicodemus at least goes this far. He says this. Does the law judge someone before it hears him and knows what he's doing? Starting to push the envelope a little bit. But now, Jesus has been crucified, give his life on the cross, and he and Joseph Arimathea come forward publicly to take his body. Now, these guys are people that have been studying the Bible. They were both considered leaders, especially Nicodemus was a religious leader. 
And part of the Sanhedrin, we don't know for sure, that means he might have been part of like a, a, a council of judges in a local town. They would have 23 judges in every Jewish city that were part of the Sanhedrin. Or they had their Supreme Court, so to speak, and they had 71 judges that was part of the Grand Sanhedrin. He might have been part of that. We're not absolutely sure, but we know he was part of the Sanhedrin. And he was a Pharisee, and he knew the Bible. He studied the Bible and prayed. I just wonder if maybe he and Joseph Arimathea are sitting over there. <laughs> and they're starting to hear Jesus say this stuff. And one looks at the other and said, You know what? That's in the Psalms. You know what? That's over in Zechariah. Well, that was mentioned back in Exodus. <laughs> because these guys knew the Bible. But whatever the reason is, now they publicly come forward and walk toward the cross by faith. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but Christian tradition tells us because of Nicodemus coming forward publicly, that he was persecuted by the Pharisees and by the Jews. He was kicked out of the Sanhedrin. And he had to leave the city for fear of his life, the city of Jerusalem. Christian tradition tells us that Peter and John baptized him because of his faith in Jesus. Not the Bible tradition passed down. But I will tell you this for sure. When Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus stepped forward to take the body of Jesus, the instant they touched the body of Jesus, they've touched a dead corpse. And as soon as they touch that dead corpse, right then and there, they are considered unclean. And the Passover that used to be so important for them, that's taking place the next day, they don't get to participate. Because they've touched a dead body. They're not allowed to partake of the Passover because they've touched a corpse. You know the neat thing? They didn't give a hoot. They had found their Passover. They had found their Passover in Jesus. So because they touched Jesus, this little religious part of their life goes by the wayside. Can I encourage you to do something right now this morning as we get ready to go into something called an invitation? If you've got all these religious parts of your life that you think has been earning you status with God, and one day maybe you can work your way to heaven if you'll just be good enough, can I encourage you to do this? If you'll just reach out and touch Jesus by faith, you'll figure out how much your religion stinks. and just place complete faith in Jesus. Let's pray. You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com.